Today I'll be preaching from verses 8 and 9, but I will start back in verse 3, and there's uh, several reasons for that. One of them is that uh, it doesn't appear in the English translation, but beginning in verse 3 through verse 9, it's actually grammatically all one sentence that's connected together. And I've taken time to uh, to pause uh, almost verse by verse here because the concepts here are just so rich that we we want to understand all of them. But I also want you to see how they are, are connected together. So I'll begin in verse 3, but concentrate on verses 8 and 9 today. Listen as I read God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is not a passage that we often turn to to think of the incarnation. During Christmas time, we are thinking a lot about the coming of Jesus Christ, that God became man in the flesh, that he came to be our savior. But it is a passage that speaks about the one that did come whom we do not see at the current time. And that is an appropriate message for this Christmas time. Because you and I and no one living today has seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. So how is it that... You love someone that you cannot see. How is it that you love someone that you have never met? Well, the answer is that we do by faith. In fact, in the midst of suffering, Peter directs you to plant your faith directly on the person of Jesus Christ. But Peter also knew that though He had seen Jesus with his own eyes, though he had heard him speak and had received teaching from him, that there would be generations following after him that would never see him with their physical eyes. And understanding that and understanding the tension, Peter wrote to confirm that the faith of those who follow after him would be just as real and vital as his faith. He was different. He had seen Jesus. But his faith was not made somehow better or more real. 
Rather, every child of God, every child, no matter what age you live in, uh, you are born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. And every one of you believing in Jesus has received a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. And so the text speaks about this, uh, about this faith and love that we have, even in the midst of our trials and even in the midst of our not seeing Jesus. And as I mentioned, it is one long grammatical sentence and it begins with the mercy of God that causes you to be born again. It begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things provide the basis for that living hope and incorruptible inheritance. And then it speaks of the reality of the suffering that you go through. It speaks about the trials that have a purpose from God for you in the midst of them. And it all then comes to a conclusion, and a conclusion that is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. So even now, though you do not see him, you believe in him and you love him. You believe in him and are are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And it's that act of faith that is oriented towards the person of Jesus Christ. It's that aspect that I want to call your attention to today, that though you do not see him, yet you love him. Though you do not see him, yet you believe in him. And it really is drawn to a real person, the person of Jesus Christ. But to back up just a little bit, Peter is speaking from his own experience here. He's speaking from the fact that he had seen. And he's also speaking from uh, the context of Jesus also knowing and understanding that there would be some followers of him that would never see him in the flesh. And it goes back to a person called Thomas, one of Jesus's disciples. And maybe you know the nickname that has been given to Thomas. His nickname is Doubting Thomas. And here's why. In John 20, we read that after Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to many. And very importantly, he appeared to his disciples. They had gathered together after the resurrection. They were filled with wonder at this news that Jesus was alive. But it also says that they were afraid of the Jews because they wanted to repress this news. And they were afraid that they too would be rounded up and killed as Jesus had been killed. But the news was that Jesus was alive. And they were filled with wonder at that. And then suddenly Jesus was there. Even though the door was locked, Jesus was there in their midst. And for their benefit, he showed them that he was no, he was, he was no ghost. He wasn't a disembodied spirit, that he was genuinely, he was really alive from the dead. He had a body as well as a soul. And so he invited them to 
to see and his hands and his feet and the side where the, the spear had been thrust as he hung on the cross. He invited them to touch him. He really was alive from the dead. And his disciples were glad. But not all of the disciples were there. Thomas was absent. He wasn't there to see this great miracle of the resurrected Lord. So when the other disciples came across Thomas, they came and they told him, we have seen the Lord. He is alive. But Thomas doubted. He doubted so much that he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side where the sword pierced, I will never believe. Now you know why he has that nickname, Doubting Thomas. There is a certain level of, uh, of experiential uh, disdain that Thomas brings to this news. We all know that in this life, dead bodies don't come back to, the, to, to life. So that doubt that he has is, is a doubt that is understandable. We've come to accept it in the Christian faith because it's such a foundational truth to us. But it just doesn't happen that dead bodies come back to the life. And Thomas is voicing maybe something that many people think today. How indeed can a dead body come back? I can't believe that. I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. I will never believe it. I've heard that. Perhaps you've thought that. And perhaps you, you still wonder about it and doubt the resurrection. But what we have in scripture is evidence of firsthand witnesses who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Thomas, Jesus came and stooped to his, his need and his desire to see and to touch. And he accommodated Thomas's doubts so that he would believe. And Jesus did this not just for Thomas, but for the rest of history. So that everyone who would never see him in the flesh would know and believe and so Jesus appeared and he invited Thomas, just as he had said, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's what Jesus said to Thomas. And Thomas's unbelief fell away and he fell down before Jesus and worship my Lord and my God says Thomas. And let me just say how merciful Jesus is at this point. Jesus knew Thomas's doubts, and he knew the struggle that not only Thomas had, but that future disciples would have. 
Those who, like Thomas, would not see him in the flesh. And I, I note as well that he, he knew that we would face times of doubt and that our faith would often be weak. And so he was merciful to Thomas so that his faith would not fail. Jesus came and said to him, touch and see and believe. He goes on after Thomas's response and says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And in saying that, Jesus looks beyond Thomas and he saw us. He looks beyond Thomas and for the benefit of of the church throughout the ages, for our benefit, he demonstrated that physical resurrection and he envisioned a day in which we would believe without any physical evidence that Thomas enjoyed. And Peter calls attention to that. Jesus was merciful towards Thomas, demonstrating his resurrection so that his faith would not fail. And in so doing, Peter can call attention to that so that your faith would not fail either. Because you do not now see Jesus, and yet you believe and you love him. Which leads us to consider what it means to walk by faith and not by sight, which is the second point of the sermon here, walking by faith and not by sight. Here's what the text says again. Having not seen you love, uh, speaking of Jesus, and though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice. So I asked a question, how do you love someone you've never seen? Well, it's by faith. You love because you believe. You see, faith and love go together. Love will will not only be connected, it's a, it vitally grows up out of faith. In a, in a sense, it's the way these two things work. The rest of the Bible teaches us that we come to know God because he has revealed himself to us. You can know God by, by looking at the world around you. By seeing what God has made, you can know the awesome power of God as a creator and sustainer of all things. But then God has also revealed himself in, in, in a rational way, not just in an experiential way, but you know God better and you know God in a saving way because he has revealed himself in his word. He has declared himself. He has told us what he is like that he is holy. And he has told you what you are like, that, that you are fallen, that you are, you are in, enslaved to sin without a savior. And it tells that 
God would send a savior into the world, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you know God through Jesus himself. And this is perhaps the most important aspect that Peter calls attention to. That God came in the flesh. And that you know God because Jesus is the living word. This is one of the reasons he came. In fact, he said this. I have come to reveal the Father to you. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And as you believe in me, you believe in him as well. And so in Jesus Christ, we come to know other aspects of God's nature. And specifically, again, for today's pasture, uh, passage, you come to know the love of God. For it was love that motivated God to come in the flesh. It was love that motivated uh, the Father and the the Son and Spirit to determine in all eternity past to save sinners. And so we learn in Scripture that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not die, but have everlasting life. By faith, then, we hear these promises. We hear what God has done. We hear that he will never turn away those who come to him in repentance and faith. We know that we have salvation because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So by faith, we hear the gospel. By faith, we we believe it. We entrust our souls to a personal savior, the Lord Jesus. And in knowing God, we, we know his love. And in knowing and experiencing his love, then we respond as well. Not just in faith, but also in love for him. I like the way the, that the Song of Solomon describes our relationship, that of God, uh, of the king drawing us to himself with bonds of love. So just think about it a little bit. Think and remember that from all eternity past, that the triune God has placed his love on you that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have covenanted together to save you, and that that covenant is a bond of love, a promise to draw you to faith. And since he has acted, we believe. Since he has first loved, we respond in love and in love as well. Without seeing him, Yes, without seeing him, we respond because of what Christ has done. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Those things that we see are not items of faith. Those are items of demonstrated aspects of our lives. But we do walk by faith and not by sight. Calvin puts it this way. That faith is not to be measured by sight, for when your life is apparently miserable, you would instantly fail. Were not your happiness dependent upon hope? 
Faith indeed has also its eyes, but they are eyes that penetrate the invisible kingdom of God and are contented with the mirror of the word, for it is for the word is the demonstration of invisible things. And I like the way that, that Calvin interacts here with the very real doubts that come up in the midst of suffering. We are creatures of this life. We haven't seen Jesus Christ with our physical eyes. And when we go through difficulties, it is part of that difficulty that we begin to doubt our relationship with a God who is good and all-powerful. You're not alone in that doubt. All you have to do is read the testimony of so many of the saints that have gone before us. All you have to do is to read through the Psalms and to recognize that cry for mercy, that cry for assurance that happens in the midst of troubles. And this is why Peter brackets the suffering with, with God, with the Father who has loved, with the Spirit who has brought life, with the Son who has given himself, and the Son whom you love, even though you have not seen him. And this is where Thomas fell short. He had heard the promises Jesus made. He knew the teaching that Jesus would die on the cross and would rise again. But Thomas doubted. It was a severe trial that he went through. The Savior that they were trusting in was, was crucified. They saw him die on the cross and be laid in a tomb. He heard, though, then his friends say that Jesus is alive. His fellow disciples said, we have seen the Lord. Thomas was bound up in his doubt. Nevertheless, Jesus loved Thomas and would not let his faith fail. And Jesus has loved you as well and will not let your faith fail. So when Peter discusses the reality of suffering, he knows he knows that trial of doubt that we all go through. And as I said, he brackets that suffering by, by the love of God, which is expressed to us so that you would, would recognize that in the middle of your suffering, that God is there. And most specifically, Christ is there. And that's why... Uh, why Peter will call your attention to the glory of the revel revelation of Jesus Christ. He says these trials test and purify your faith so that the at the end of the race you may found, be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what is that revelation? Well, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the end of all time, he has promised to come again, even as he came the first time. He will come in the flesh. He came at first to accomplish salvation by his incarnation and his death on the cross. 
And you are now by faith a child of God, seeing Jesus, not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of your faith. You are seeing Jesus and you are trusting in him so that you will receive what the text calls in verse 9, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just as a quick note here, when Peter refers to the salvation of your soul, you should understand he is speaking uh, kind of in a shorthand about your eternal salvation that that includes not just your spirit, not just your soul, but your body as well. And we know this from the rest of Scripture, where uh, where Christ is declared to come again at the end of time in a bodily form, uh, as he truly is now. He will come again and he will raise the dead, reuniting body and soul forever. Now, there's something else that you haven't seen with your physical eyes. You haven't seen the resurrection from the dead. You haven't seen the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it will come. It will surely come because God has promised it. And it will surely come because Christ himself has gone to prepare a place for you. And if he has gone to prepare a place for you, he says that he will come again. He will receive you to himself so that where he is, you may be also. He has kept an inheritance for you in heaven and he keeps you for that inheritance as well. And what is our response well, our response is faith and love and joy. Coming from this text, though you do not see him, you believe. And I've given a lot of attention to the response of faith, and I won't go further to explain it, but I will invite you to believe. I will invite you to believe that Jesus is the Savior and invites you to entrust your soul and body to him, that he died on the cross for our offenses, that he was raised for your justification. I invite you to believe. And I invite you to love. Though you do not see him, you love him. And I say this because Peter does. <laughs> That's easy. But I also say it because, uh, because love and faith are attached. Faith is, is not somehow just a cold, rational act of logic. These are truths that move our souls and move our affections, our emotions. In fact, even the way I say it as, as being truths that move us falls short of what the Christian faith grasps. We grasp something more than just propositions. Our faith is directed to a person. And that is vitally important. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. The reality of a triune God. But especially uh, our, our Lord who came in the flesh. Our Lord who died, 
bodily had suffered the wrath of God on the cross, who was dead and buried and is risen again. We believe in a person, fully God and fully man, who is even now ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father on high and will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in a person, not an idea, not a a well-wishing mentality that we could all be better if we would be like Jesus. No, it is a person that we believe in. He was and is and continues to be our Savior, your Savior. He lives to intercede for you, to mediate for you, to pray for you, to sustain you. And I hope you get the idea that I'm pressing home this point that your faith is in a person, not a thing or a concept or a proposition or a construct. It is in a person. And since it's in a person, it's natural that out of faith would grow love. By faith, we hear those promises and believe. And I want you to grasp the enormity of this truth, that Jesus loves you and has saved you from your own sins and has saved you from the wrath of the Father for all eternity. I want you to grasp the enormity of that personal relationship that personal love with Jesus Christ that you have so that you can meditate on who and what Jesus has done. And though you haven't seen him, that you do indeed love him. And Peter says that though you haven't seen him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. Have you ever had one of those moments where something is so great that you can't even put it into words? That can happen in lots of different stages of life. Maybe uh, there's a moment uh, when you're playing music when everything just fits right and you can't even express why this is so good. You may be transported in a book or it may be in, in a relationship between husband and wife where, where these things you just cannot express. And this is what Peter describes here is that you get a taste of Jesus's love. You get a taste of your salvation. You come to to just have a glimpse of the enormity of what God has done for you. And you're overwhelmed with the joy that comes from realizing these truths. This is the joy of the Christian life that you have because of Jesus, that you have even though you have not seen him. Let me give a word of caution here, though. It is possible that you would read these things and you might say, well, I don't have that joy. I, I, I don't seem to experience this level of love. 
And I want you to be careful here to remember that that your feelings are not always the same and they're informed a lot by our experience of of this life. And when you suffer, it can be especially dangerous to measure your relationship to Christ by your feelings. Peter's just said that we will suffer. That we suffer a variety of trials and that they are grievous. Grief and joy seem to cancel each other out. And you may be tempted to say that the absence of joy means that you do not know Jesus. But let me remind you that Christ himself was grieved. That the apostles expressed uh, the the uh, the burdens of this life with terms that are are even gut wrenching to us that all throughout scripture there are those that cry out to God asking for uh, for reassurance for uh, for confidence for joy to be uh, to be returned to our lives but their expressions of those sufferings do not mean that they were not Christians. And those trials and even those doubts do not mean that you are not a Christian. It is very possible that you may go through life wondering if Jesus would accept you, that your assurance of salvation might ebb and flow, sometimes feeling very close to our Redeemer and sometimes feeling very distant. But your assurance and the reality of the thing are are two separate aspects. The reality is based not on your feelings, but they are based on the faithfulness of Jesus who has loved you who gave himself for you. You may not always have assurance, but you can nurture it. You can nurture it by reminding yourself of the one you believe in. Remind yourself of your Savior, Jesus. Remind yourself of the person and the promises of your Redeemer. Remind yourself that He has indeed loved you and made you a child of God. For in Jesus, you receive what you long for. You receive the end of your faith, salvation of your soul. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you that... That, uh, that you have loved us so that our faith will not fail. And thank you, O God, for the demonstration that you have indeed come in the flesh to be our Redeemer. Thank you, excuse me, thank you that in Jesus those doubts that we have may be met. And we come to you, O God, and though we doubt, we kneel before you and ask, O God, that you would reassure us in our faith, that you would reassure us of your love, 
And that, like Thomas, that we would fall before you and say, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll close by singing Psalm 13, Selection B. I want you to notice that in this psalm we express our doubts. We express our suffering. Oh, how long, Lord, forget me? Will it be forever? The psalm goes on, though, to speak of the loving kindness of God. He will not forget. He will not turn you away. And so we praise him. My Lord and my God. Let's stand and sing Psalm 13b.